your name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning I have a bit of a confession. It took me a little while to to come around and catch up to everyone else, uh, but eventually I fell in love and became completely hooked. That's right, when I saw Disney's Frozen, I was absolutely sold out. So some of you are laughing because you're in my boat. Some of you are like, I have heard that song so many times. Uh, and, I, and on the Brookside staff, I'll just go ahead and sell them out, not by name, but I'm not alone. I mean, I think, I think Bill told me the first time that he saw that, he used it in his sermon like the next three Sundays or something. Uh, so I'm not alone. I mean, the, the, the storyline's compelling. It's different than other Disney movies. The soundtrack is really catchy. And I just love Olaf the Snowman. I mean, right? There's just so much there to love. Well, I mentioned that I get to work with our students, and so last month, uh, the, st- my, the students and myself, some of the leaders, we joined the other campuses uh, of, Brookside, of Christ Community, as well as our sister church for a joint fall retreat. And one of the funniest moments of the weekend, for those of you that were there, you'll remember this fondly, was when at lunch on Saturday, uh, they cranked up the lyrics to let it go, let it go. And since I've already revealed a deep and abiding love for this movie. I mean, it can't get much worse for me, so I'll go ahead and say, I know all the lyrics to Let It Go by Heart. And I was, I was in, the, uh, in the line getting my lunch, and I was belting it out, and there's this high school girl from another campus that just had this look on her face like, I'm glad I don't go to Brookside. <laughs> I mean, what is, who's this weirdo that's just belting out Let It Go? Uh, but if you've heard it, it's catchy, right? I mean, you know probably why I know the lyrics. It just kind of sticks in your brain and won't get out. Uh, you know, the other day, I actually took a look at what Elsa is, is actually saying in that song. And it's easy to do that, right? Where, where we have this song that's stuck in our heads and we know it by heart, but we're actually glossing over the words. And so there's one line in particular, and don't, don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to sing it this morning. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. (laughs) I'll spare you guys. But here's the line. Here's the line that really jumped out to me as I actually started studying what she was saying. Elsa says, she sings, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. You know, what we have here, Elsa is basically offering up a definition for relativism. Relativism is the belief that truth and then as a result, any sense of right and wrong is flexible. If it works for you, then it's true for you. If it doesn't, then it's not. Absolutes don't exist. You know, understandably so, this line of thinking makes Christians uncomfortable. But the problem is, I'm not sure that we live that differently. I think if we're honest, sometimes we all would love to pull an Elsa. And and I don't mean making ice come out of our hands. I mean we'd love to raise our arms and say, I'm free. There's no right, there's no wrong. I get to decide what should be done and what shouldn't be done. How to live my life. I get to decide how to test the limits of what's right for me. I'll speak for myself. There are a lot of days where I want to be completely independent and free, my own master, my own God. I think to myself, it's my life. 
I should be in the driver's seat. And a world without truth, or at least a world where we or I define truth, that feels like freedom. If there's no absolute truth, then what I think is right is right, and what I think is wrong is wrong. I'll be free to live how I want to live, right? But the reality is this. There are plenty of ways to be enslaved, but there's only one way to be set free. There are plenty of ways to be enslaved, but there's only one way to be set free. Today, we're going to meet a character in the book of John named Pilate. He was a man of power in Jesus' day and was also a man who rejected truth. This combination should have set him free, right? As we'll see, it was only another way to become enslaved. But even still, Jesus listens to him. We're in week seven of our fall series, Jesus Listens. And along the way, we've been observing how Jesus shares Jesus so that ultimately you and I can share him better. And often we've seen that listening, not necessarily speaking, although that does come, but listening is often first at the core of how Jesus shares himself. We've seen in these previous weeks how he listens to the questions of the skeptic how he penetrates through the silence of the satisfied, how he hears the voice of the voiceless. And this morning, we see that Jesus listens to the uncertainty of the relativist. The conversation between Jesus and Pilate revolves around a simple but important question found on Pilate's lips in John 18, 28. Pilate, says to Jesus, I'm sorry, 1838, Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? And as we tell this story this morning, you can follow along in John 18 and 19, we're simply going to try to answer Pilate's question for him. What is truth? As we'll see from the passage, truth is freedom from the enslaving opinion of others, freedom from being your own highest authority, and freedom from the abuse of power. What looks like freedom for Pilate is just another form of slavery. Again, there are many ways to be enslaved, but there's only one way to be set free. First, we see from the passage that truth is freedom from the enslaving opinion of others. You know, picking up this story in John 18, we look in on Jesus on Friday morning. At this point, Jesus has already been betrayed, abandoned, and denied. And all of that was by his closest friends and followers who said they were never going to abandon him. But the second that trouble comes, they run. Now Jesus is on trial, a trial that he knows is headed in one direction and one direction only, his own crucifixion. And the one person, Pilate, with the earthly power to stop this trial, he literally washes his hands of the matter and steps back. Now Pilate was an important man. 
He was appointed by the emperor of that time, Tiberius, to be governor of Judea. He was a Roman, and he had absolute earthly power over the Jews. It was moving this morning to watch the scene between Jesus and Pilate, wasn't it? I mean, Pilate looked the part, didn't he? Regal, important, put together, authoritative, in charge. And yet, what is Pilate asking of Jesus? What's the question that he throws his way? Jesus, who is bloodied and beaten and bruised. Pilate looks at Jesus and says, are you king of the Jews? Now, the visual irony here, I mean, she just hit us in the face. The man who looks like a king, as Pilate did, right? The only thing missing is the crown. Pilate, who looks like a king, is turning to Jesus, who looks like he's nearly dead, and saying to him, are you the king of the Jews? And, and the readers of John's gospel, that's us. I mean, we should understand the deeper irony, even beyond the visual irony that we see on the screen. Because the truth is, as John has been revealing from chapter one in his gospel, the truth is that Jesus just isn't a king, indefinite article. He is the king, capital, the king, the king of kings, Pilate's king, in fact. This irony is so rich, John doesn't want us to miss it. And Jesus, well, he either is that king or he is the most self-centered, narcissistic person who ever lived. I mean, look at what he says in verse 37 of chapter 18. Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Truth, Pilate shoots back at him. What is truth? And then he walks off without waiting for an answer. See, Pilate doesn't want an answer. To him, there is no truth. Or at least there is no truth beyond the power that he thinks he possesses. It's interesting what happens in the story next. This fascinates me. In his truthless empire, Pilate really does try to get Jesus off. Uh, he goes to the crowd. He proclaims Jesus' innocence. I find no guilt in him, he says. Now, it was a Passover custom to release one prisoner to the crowds. So after declaring Jesus' innocence, Pilate tries to convince them to take Jesus. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks the crowd. No, they yell back. We want Barabbas who was a violent terrorist. So Pilate, he compromises with the crowd. He has Jesus flogged, beaten, and humiliated. A crown of thorns shoved onto his head to mock him as the king of the Jews. Pilate is hoping that this will alleviate the crowd's demands. It doesn't. Look with me at verse 19, I mean chapter 19, verse 4. For a second time, Pilate says to him, or says to the crowds, I find no guilt in him. Again, a second time, he's declared this, but it doesn't matter. The crowd, stirred up by the religious leaders, begins chanting for Jesus to be crucified. Verse 19.6, we find the same statement. For a third time now, 
Pilate declares to the crowd, I find no guilt in him. But again, it doesn't matter. Pilate thinks he's free, but in reality, he is enslaved to the opinions of others. Ultimately, in this story, as we know, Pilate gives in and crucifies Jesus. Pilate the powerful, reigning in his truthless empire. And who's really in charge in this story? It's not Pilate, it's the crowds. Pilate is anything but free. You see, without truth, all we have is the loudest opinions of the people around us. It's not that relativists don't have a code for right and wrong. It's just that the code is at the mercy of the loudest voices. You know, today the crowd says that it's A. But what happens tomorrow when the crowd shifts and says, no, now it's B? It's pretty obvious that today in the 21st century, the world is rapidly changing. And kids, students, I think you all feel this more than even we might this rapidly changing culture around us. And I know, I know, it feels free, doesn't it? But if the crowd decides, then what's over the crowd? Who's to say that the crowd is right? And again, what happens when the crowd changes its mind? Consider some of the extreme Islamic states where women have no rights whatsoever. They are slaves in their own homes. They can't be educated, own property, pursue friendships, and they can even be murdered if they mess up. The loudest voices in that culture, the crowd, so to speak, in that culture, they say that's the way it should be. And yet everyone in this room is appalled by a culture like that. Why? You know, without truth, the only reason we can give for that being wrong is because our crowd says it's wrong. And our crowd is educated, wealthy, and from the West, which of course means that makes us right. Wait a second. Is that really what we want to base our morality on? Or or consider that our crowd has now declared that there are no sexual rules, unless it's between two consenting adults. And really, I do wonder where we came up with that as the only rule. I mean, what's to say that that's not going to shift or change at some point? But we have complete sexual freedom, right? That's what our crowd, the loudest voices, have said. And what has that led to? The highest divorce rates, divorce rates that our country has ever seen and more abandoned children than ever before. Are we sure the crowds are right? Remember, just like Pilate experienced, there are many ways to be enslaved. But there's only one way to be set free. Well, the enslaving opinions of the crowd is not Pilate's only problem. We also see in this passage that truth is freedom from being your own highest authority. Before giving in to the crowds and crucifying Jesus, Pilate has another chat with him. In verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 10, Pilate says to him, to Jesus, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to to crucify you? In one sense, this is absolutely true. A man with Pilate's earthly power had final earthly authority in all matters. 
Sure, Pilate is a slave to the crowds, but at the core, he really is accountable to no one else on earth. In verse 11, Jesus responds to him. This is powerful. Jesus says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus says to Pilate, You don't have authority. I do. And Pilate, well, he misses the freedom found in that statement. Listen, and this, this is really hard for me to say. True freedom is found in letting someone better call the shots. True freedom is found in letting someone better call the shots. That's a rather unbelievable statement, isn't it? I mean, I imagine that some of you are probably thinking right now that I'm a bit off my rocker. Come on, Paul. You can say that giving up authority in your life to someone else is freeing, but you don't really mean it. How could that possibly be true? I, I know that some of you are thinking that because while I was writing this message, I was thinking that. Like I said earlier, I will admit that being my own highest authority is really appealing. Again, it's my life, I think. Why shouldn't I be in the driver's seat? Isn't that what this is all about? Looking out for number one and being in charge of your own life? But consider this question. Which you do you want running your life? Which you do you want to have the authority? I'll use myself as an example. At every stage of my life, I thought I knew enough to be the one in charge, to have authority. You know, when I was four or five, I thought it was absolutely crazy that my parents wanted to keep me from running across the street. How dare they call the shots in my life, I thought. True freedom would have been able to be, a, being able to run free wherever I wanted. I wanted the authority. I thought I knew what was best. At age nine or 10, I never would have eaten a vegetable or come in from playing sports to do my homework. If I had had the authority, I definitely would not be standing here today. At age 12 or 13, I would have watched every single scary movie that came out, even though they frightened me to pieces so much that each, each time I watched one, I had to spend the night sleeping on my mom and dad's floor in their bedroom. That's true. At 12 or 13, I'm not making that up. But I still, if I had had the authority, I would have watched every single one. Every single one. Somehow, I thought I knew best. At age 17, I was firmly convinced beyond a doubt that I was going to marry the girl that I was dating. <laughs> I just knew it. I was the authority in my life in the driver's seat and nothing could go wrong, right? Wrong. <laughs> now, looking back at all those prior versions of myself, I wouldn't give them the keys to the car of my life for one second. <laughs> And yet, here I am at age 25, firmly convinced again that I have it figured out. Sure, I made all the mistakes back then. I thought I had it and I didn't, but I've learned so much now. I learned from those mistakes, and here I am. I'm totally ready to be the ultimate authority in my own life. I wonder what 40-year-old Paul would say to 25-year-old Paul. You get away from the car of our life. <laughs> Give me the keys back. You're not ready. You'll never be ready. Because true freedom comes not from being the own authority, being your own ultimate authority. It comes 
from letting someone better call the shots. It comes from always getting into the passenger seat and letting someone else drive. And not just anybody else. What if there is someone who designed me, who knows me, and who loves me better than I love myself? And I know that's a big if for some of you this morning. But if there is someone who sees the beginning, the middle, and the end of my life, who sees four or five-year-old me, nine or 10-year-old me, 12 or 13-year-old me, 17-year-old me, 25-year-old me, 40, if there's someone that sees all that, then where does true freedom lie? With me calling my own shots or with him? So let me ask you, do you really want to be the ultimate authority in your own life? Pilate thought he did. And look where it got him. He's holding his authority over Jesus as the ultimate form of freedom and power. But then when it comes down to it, Pilate was ultimately powerless and enslaved. Remember, there are many ways to be enslaved, but only one way to be set free. Thirdly, truth is freedom from the abuse of power. Freedom from the abuse of power. So far, Pilate's relativism hasn't freed him at all. Instead, he has been enslaved to the opinions of others and enslaved to his own authority. We also see in this passage that truth frees from the abuse of power. Wait a second, that that can't be right. Everyone knows absolute truth claims lead to an abuse of power, not freedom from it. One of the reasons I think in our culture that we tend towards relativism today is because we see the violence and injustice of the powerful flaunting their truth and holding it over others. Christians do this. Muslims do this. Atheists do this. You know, Pilate, he rejects absolute truth in this story, but where does it end up? Not away from the abuse of power, but actually with the most horrifying display of the abuse of power that this world has ever seen, with Jesus, truly innocent, being murdered on a cross. And yet Pilate rejects absolute truth. You know, Pilate, he's the only one who has the earthly authority to stop this injustice, Except that with no basis for truth, ultimately for him, there's no basis then for justice. There's no rational safeguard against oppression and violence if everything is shifting and there's no absolute truth that is grounded. How could we say that it's wrong to oppress women if there's not absolute truth? How could we say that it's wrong to oppress homosexuals if there's no absolute truth? I I agree that these things are terrible, but there has to be an absolute truth that is grounded in something or else there's just going to be a shifting tide. Yes, absolute truth claims, they can lead to violence. We've seen this over and over again in the history of the world. Ultimately, those those truth claims and the fighting that happens as a result of it, that, that may end up destroying us. But relativism isn't necessarily the answer. What is true is that both truth claims, absolute truth claims and relativism lead and can lead down the pathway to violence. We see relativism leading to violence in this story with Pilate and Jesus. 
And we see relativism lead to violence in, in some of the stories like Hitler and Stalin and their philosophical ideologies. It isn't just absolute truth claims that lead to violence. You know, the philosopher Nietzsche, he talked about the absolute will to power. And in some of his writings, he points out that truth claims and then no truth claims both ultimately lead to robbing and taking from the poor. Nietzsche, he understood it wasn't just absolute truth claims that lead to an abuse of power. Every claim leads there, except for one. What if our truth, the truth, capitalized, right? The truth dies for his enemies. No violence, no injustice. Our truth goes to the cross. That's crazy, right? Jesus, in this story, he's the only one with all real power. Jesus is the only one who has every right to destroy those who are seeking to destroy him. But what does he do? Does he abuse his power? No. He gives it up willingly. What does he do? Father, forgive them, he says. And yes, we Christians have blown it, right? We have taken, we have abused, we have judged, just like the rest. But this, this truth, the truth, capital T truth, that goes to the cross willingly to die for his enemies, that's the truth that might possibly lead somewhere else. That's the truth claim that can lead to love and accept people who are different, who disagree, and who would destroy us if they had the chance. It's only here in the truth of Jesus, that we learn to reject violence and the abuse of power and the demand of our own rights. Remember, we have no right to abuse any power that we think we have because we worship a God who willingly stripped himself of his power to come and serve his enemies. That message, that gospel message, that truth leads to freedom from the abuse of power. Compare Jesus and Pilate in this story. Compare Jesus and the crowds. The only one, Jesus, who is truly free is the one who walks to his own death. And why did he do that? To rescue slaves like you and me. To rescue slaves like you and me. So if this is truth, then what do we do with it? If this is truth, then what do we do with it? Well, three things jump out at me. Three simple next steps for all of us to take. First, seek the truth. Seek the truth. I would say this, especially if you are here today and aren't a Christian. I'm reminded of the story of Rosario Butterfield. Uh, Bill talked about her a few weeks ago. She was a leftist, lesbian English professor who hated Christians. She thought that their truth claims were arrogant and pompous. And after writing one particularly hateful newspaper article towards Christianity, she received a letter that kind of blew up all of her categories. It confused her. She writes, the letter was from a pastor, Ken Smith. It was, kind, it was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? 
Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. End quote. In essence, what Ken encouraged Rosario to do in his letter was seek the truth. And to all the non-Christians here today, and in fact, to all the Christians as well, and maybe especially students, as you're growing up and figuring out this Christianity thing, to all of us here today, though, I would say, seek the truth. Ask yourself this question. Am I honestly pursuing truth, or am I running from it? Do I even want this Jesus story to be true? All of us must start here, asking ourselves honest questions about what we believe to be true in our lives. Seek the truth. Second, submit to the truth. At some point, we have to move beyond theory into the everyday. We have to move beyond, think, we have to move beyond thinking about what we, what we decide is true or not to actual living, right? Living out, because our, the truths that we have in our minds, they actually influence the way we live day to day. So if there is absolute truth, and I, I'm one who thinks that there is, if there is absolute truth, there isn't any good in denying it, right? That won't get you anywhere. If there is absolute truth, then that should influence the way that we live, the way that we live. If, if we try to deny it, that'll get us somewhere, in fact, very negative. And I, I'm reminded of my friend Micah Corlew. Uh, now, Micah is the one friend that has such crazy stories that the rest of the friends that you have in your life that haven't met Micah don't think he exists. And if you don't have a friend like that, you may be that person, <laughs> right? So Micah, I mean, just, my, he was a friend in high school, and my college friends were like, there's no way that this guy is real, but, but he is. And one time in high school, we were driving, Micah was in the driver's seat, from his house to my house. And, and all of a sudden, Micah took the wheel of the car, and he just whipped it left. And he wasn't avoiding a deer that had jumped out. There wasn't an oncoming car or a squirrel or anything. It was a completely clear road. But the next thing I knew, we are driving squarely in the left-hand lane of the road. And I am, you know, freaking out. Mike has done some crazy things, but this is right up there. And with this crazed look in his eye, Micah turns to me and he goes, I'm in Europe. <laughs> yeah, see, maybe obvious to everyone except Micah, he was not in Europe. <laughs> What's the point of that? Well, the absolute truth claim of our roadways here in America is that we drive where? On the right side of the road. And denying that this was the absolute truth claim and, and pretending that he was in Europe driving on the left side of the road, what would that have ultimately done if he, you know, I didn't yank the wheel back? It would have led to disastrous consequences. Not just for him, but for me too. It's the same way with us and God. God has absolute truths. These are God's laws. And when we reject them, when we deny that there are absolute truths, when we drive on the left side of the road, it ends in disastrous consequences for us. It ends in disastrous consequences. Life is better when we submit to the one who knows it better. Life is better when we submit to the one who knows it better. Life is better when we drive on the right side of the road. You know, I've tried to be my own master and authority. Maybe I'm just lousy at it and y'all are better than me, but I give up. If Jesus loves me enough to die for me, to, to, to empty himself of his power, and then he proved actually his power and victory by coming back to life even after he had emptied it, 
emptied it, I'm with him. Why not try letting him take over for a while? Why not try giving him the keys to the car? I know it's a paradox, freedom coming from submission. But doesn't it sound like a paradox worth trying out? Submit to the truth. And finally, share the truth. This story is simply too good. We shouldn't be able to keep it to ourselves. Christians are often accused of being hypocrites. I think this is because we're hypocrites. I mean, think about the violence and oppression committed in the name of Jesus throughout the centuries. We have blown it, haven't we? Every truth claim, even the truth claims that there are no truth claims, makes people superior. I mean, when somebody tries to tell you there's no truth, ask them if they think that's true. Every worldview, every religion, every truth claim makes itself better than others. That is, every truth claim except ours. <laughs> Wait a second. That sounds awful superior, doesn't it? But think about it. The very center of our faith, our biggest truth claim, is that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And this actually declares that we Christians are lower down and worse off than everyone else. Christians are nothing if not a self-selecting group of people who say, I can't save myself. I can't find my own way. I can't do it on my own. We say, you're right. I'm a hypocrite. We're hypocrites. I'm no better off or more superior than anyone else. That's why Jesus had to die for me. There was no other way for him to rescue me. We have blown it, and we will continue to blow it. That's at the very heart. That's our biggest truth claim, is that we're actually worse than we or anyone else could ever imagine. So we repent. We apologize. We remain humble at all times. We grow and we change, and we fall on our knees before a cross that screams out, there was no other way for God to save me. He had to go this far. And that is a story worth sharing. That's a truth worth sharing, a truth that is wrapped in love and humility. It's worth passing on. Think of the Samaritan woman in John 4. Bill preached about her just a few weeks ago. She has this life-changing encounter with the truth, with Jesus, and then she can't keep it in. She didn't have much to brag about, did she? And I know I don't either. But what does she do? She leaves her water jug, so important in the story, leaves her water jug, goes back into the town and says, come and see, she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the one that has come to save me from my mess? Who do you need to say, come and see to? Who do you need to share the truth with? At the beginning of this series, Bill, we, we handed out uh, tic-tac-toe cards, and Bill asked us to write down people's names on those cards. He said, pray for them. Listen to them. How's that going for you? You know, I'll be honest, 
I haven't prayed for those people or listened to them as much as I would like. Life gets busy, right? Life gets crazy. It's overwhelming. But if this all really is true, and it's a good story, isn't it? We, want, we should want it to be true that even though we're this messed up, we're not beyond saving. If that's true, if that's a true thing, and I think it is, it's too good to keep to ourselves. Are the people on that card, are, are they the ones that you need to share the truth with? What would that look like this week? How could you listen to them well? How could you ask them to come and see the truth that is Jesus Christ? The truth that frees rather than enslaves. Remember, there are many ways to be enslaved, but only one way to be set free. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus.